book of Psalms. Danny asked for a title to the sermon more than a week ago. I've since shortened it to just the road to happiness. I preached uh, several years ago uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, both uh, individually. But today I want to really look at both of those psalms together. Uh, and as we look at these psalms, I want, you to, I want to start just by asking you a question. <coughs> what is it that you believe will make you happy? If someone were to ask you, what is the key to happiness? Could you tell them? I actually believe that how you answer that question will fundamentally dictate how you live your life. When Jesus was being tested in the wilderness, he spoke these words, quoting Deuteronomy 8. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was absolutely committed to every word that came from the mouth of God. And I believe he was committed to that path because he knew that it was the path to happiness. He also taught his disciples to pray. We just said it a moment ago. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The kingdom of God is a worldwide kingdom over which Jesus reigns as the sovereign ruler. It is a kingdom in which everyone obeys his will all the time. And our eternal happiness, our eternal happiness coincides with a perfect delight in God's law and a perfect submission to God's will. We just sang that in Blessed Assurance twice. It said perfect submission. And I don't know about you, but every time I sing that, I'm like, I'm not perfectly submitted. <clears throat> but I'm going to tell you that these truths are eternal. Happiness is found in perfect submission to God's law and perfect submission to God's king. You cannot change that. You cannot alter it. To do so would be to overthrow the God of the universe. The tragedy of our modern culture the tragedy of the world in which our kids are growing up in today is the belief that those two truths can be overthrown. Psalm 1 
defines to us the path to happiness, the road to happiness. And Psalm 2 declares to us that that happiness is found in the kingdom of God. And as such, these two truths are the pillars that, by which you enter into the rest of the 148 psalms in your Bibles. Hear that a second. I'm trying to help you understand that, that Psalms 1 and 2 have been placed at the beginning of the Psalter so that you can think about those two truths. Happiness is found in, in delighting in God's law and happiness is found in submission to God's king. Those two truths are the truths by which you are supposed to filter the rest of the Psalms and understand them. The 150 Psalms that you have in your Bible were not brought together. They were not collated as, as one uh, 150 uh, hymn book, 150 uh, songs or whatever together until the time of the exile or even after the exile. I mean, it was a long time. Most of them were written either during the time of David's rule or after. Now, this is, I struggle to try to help you understand the significance of this. The Psalms are written over a 500-year period. And they are written as expressions that God's people have as they are experiencing life in light of their covenant relationship with God. Okay? So, for instance, many of the Psalms express the experiences of King David, both good and bad. Many of the, of the psalms arise out of uh, the, the psalmist's frustration with the Davidic kings, like all David's descendants, right, that are on the throne. Some kings not too bad, some worse, you know, that, that kind of thing. And some of the psalms are written as that kingship actually dissolves, as the Davidic kings are conquered. And some of them actually arise out of this heartache that the kingdom of God, as the people understood it, was actually dissolved and people were taken into exile to a foreign power. And so you have uh, Psalm 1, which says that happiness is found in delighting in God's law, and Psalm 2, which says that God is the king and his ruler on earth is the, is the one that God sets up to, develop, to uh, establish his kingdom on earth. And then you have all of these frustrating experiences. Nathan did a good job this morning talking about that. You know, you could read Psalm 1 and 2 and say, oh, I'm happy. Good. Good to go. But if you read the Psalms, it's often they're wrestling with the deep realities of frustration of life in light of the expectations of Psalm 1 and 2. As God's people face their own rebellion... That's, you know, like, I'm supposed to be delighting in God's law, but I'm struggling with a rebellious heart. 
Okay, that's, that's part of the Psalms to deal with that issue. Some of them face their disappointment with rulers, kings that God has put in place. Some of them face the fact that their enemies are conquering them. Some of them face the fact that uh, I am dealing with heart issues. <laughs> I don't know if heart, you know, but physical calamities, diseases, and struggles that Psalm 1 says that they shouldn't have. And I'm telling you, the most challenging enemy that you will ever face, the most sinister enemy, the one that is most deceitful and subtle, is the challenge to your faith of no longer believing what God says in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. That's why our world is in such a place that it is right now. Young people, you are being taught on a regular basis that happiness is not found in the church, in God's word, in the truths of the covenant. None of that. In fact, the best place you can find happiness is to throw all that off. In fact, they, you are being taught on a regular basis that if you are taught that the Bible is God's truth, you are being oppressed. I've sat in my office as a mother weeps because her kids that have grown up in the church look at her and say that you have oppressed us. The psalmists deal with the realities of a broken world while stubbornly refusing to let go of the promises of the covenant. We spent a year and a half in Genesis talking about the Abrahamic covenant and the promises of blessing. We haven't done, that done this recently, but if you go to Exodus and Deuteronomy, you start reading about the, the Mosaic law and the, and the wonderful promises that God makes to those who delight in God's law. If you get to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, you get to see that God promises to David, a son of yours will be the king who will rule over all. And those promises are the foundation of what is written in the Psalms. Um, the Psalms are written in, or the 150 Psalms are, are divided into five different books. And I'm not going to go into a lot of this, but I want you to understand that uh, the first book of the Psalms is chapter 3 through chapter 41. And if you flipped over to 41, you could see with 42, it actually says book 2. And book 2 is actually Psalms 42 to 72. Okay? Now, these two books establish the Davidic hope. That's what they do. Okay? In fact, if you were to look at Psalm 72... At the very end of that psalm, it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So the first two books are heavy on David's experience. In fact, the first book of, of, of the psalms is exclusively David's psalms. Okay? 
And they, they all say a psalm of David, a psalm of David, a psalm of David, except for two of them, which we think will combine with the previous ones with it. But Psalms 1 and 2 have no heading like that. And so it's not unjustified that we look at Psalms 1 and 2 as actually like the, the preface to the whole Psalter. <clears throat> I think looking at this broad structure helps us to understand what's the big message to the whole Psalms. Honestly, dealing with the realities of a broken world while continuing to cling to the promises of God. That's what Nathan talked about today. Great call to worship. Psalm 1 begins with a declaration of happiness, and Psalm 2 ends with a declaration of happiness. So I'm going to read those to you. The ESV uses the word blessed, uh, but I think it's happy. And I'll explain to you here in a minute why. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in, in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like, potter's, like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, Psalm 1 is a very simple psalm. It's, it sets up a contrast between two very different paths. You can take one of, the, of two paths in your life. And the psalm is purposely there to call you to choose the path of happiness. That's what it's doing. Now, there are two Hebrew words that are both translated in the English as blessed. In Psalm 1 and 2, actually the less common word is chosen. It's Asher or Asherah. 
The more common word is barak, which is which used when it says God blesses them, or you know, it's, it's a statement on God's lips that he blesses his people. It's very broad, and it includes everything that's in Asher, but it's, it's more broad in its, in its uh, use. Asherah has a more limited meaning. And this is very important for you to just ponder. It is used to describe what a person feels when they are in a state of well-being. Think about that. It's, 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 it's what, the, what you feel when you are in a state of well-being. So the Holman Standard Bible says, How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked? Da, 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 da. Young's literal translation, I think, is even better. Oh, the happiness of that one, and then on. See, at the end of Psalm 2, there's the same statement. Instead of blessed, oh, happy are all those who take refuge in him. Oh, the happiness of those who are trusting in him. See, the psalmist does not teach that happiness is some future statement that you will get after this life. He is teaching that the person who follows his counsel will experience happiness. Think about that. Without that expectation, you cannot understand the rest of the Psalms. See, if all I told you was that, hey, life is going to be miserable now, but you're going to have great fun and glory. You would never be frustrated with your life. Well, you might be frustrated, but you, you'd be like, oh, yeah, God never promised me good, good things here. It's just all in the future. And there's an element of that that's true. And okay, I'm not going to work all this through. But Psalm 1 basically says, follow God and you'll be happy. What the psalmists do... And if you read, read through the Psalms, spend your time in the Psalms, they're often saying, what is going on? I'm trying to follow you, and I am not happy. See, if you don't have the expectation, you don't understand the psalm. The psalmists are wrestling with the tension of that truth. I am not experiencing what Psalm 1 tells me I should be experiencing. But you know what the psalmists never do? They never let go of what is true in Psalm 1. It's like they're, they're, they're holding on to it, and even though that everything that they're experiencing is like tugging them in one direction away from this, they're saying, I will not let go of this. Because if God says it's true, it will be true. Young people, again, I, I feel for you the world is telling you that Christianity is a fraud. And because you daily are faced with your own unhappiness, it's not just young people, it's, it's older people too, but young people especially, you are faced with unhappiness on a regular basis. And you have probably prayed to God to ask him to fix your unhappiness. And he hasn't done it. 
And so instead of looking at, at this and clinging to Psalm 1 as true, even though your experience is not there, you know what you do? You know what the world tells you to do? Oh, Christianity is nothing more than a human man-made religion designed to manipulate you. That's what the world's telling you. Parents, if you don't know this, this is what the world's telling your kids. Instead of presenting a path to happiness, Christianity is a, tr a tool of oppression. That's what the world is teaching. And then they say that the way to happiness is to follow your own heart. You want to be happy? Do what you want. It's interesting that our own declaration of independence actually establishes this as a right. You have a right to pursue happiness. Inalienable. Nobody can take it from you, not even God. And yet, and I like this, I, I uh, found this quote. Armand Nicoli writes, very few Americans are happy. No aspect of life is more desired more elusive, and more perplexing than happiness. People wish and strive for what they believe will make them happy. Good health, attractive looks, an ideal marriage, children, a comfortable home, success, fame, financial independence, the list goes on and on. Interestingly enough, not everyone who attains these goals have or finds happiness. You see, Psalm 1 does not encourage us to figure out for ourselves the road for happiness. It doesn't say you have to go on some search for happiness. Psalm 1 tells you very clearly there's only one path. There is only one path to happiness. How is that happiness found? It is found by bringing your life into accord with God's established law. that to the world they say man that sounds like oppression and happiness is found this is just psalm 2 dovetailing with psalm 1 bringing your heart in submission to god's king see laws demand conformity and the king possesses authority over you and a Ro the road to happiness begins with a rejection of the mindset that tells you that that is not the road to happiness. You know, the counsel of the wicked is to tell you that's oppressive. You have to reject that. Another way of saying this is you should be autonomous. You should be king of your own life. Be your own master. But God says, you want to know happiness? Think about, study, meditate upon, delight in God's law.
It actually means that you'll have an emotional attachment to it. I'm already developing an emotional attachment to my granddaughter. I delight to watch her grow. Joshua 1.8 says it very clearly. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make, then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And I love this, because it's not just an attitude of happiness. You will be successful. You'll be prosperous. Right now you're thinking, oh no, is Mike turned into a health and wealth gospel guy? You will be, verse 3, Psalm 1, like a tree tr planted by streams of water that the leaves never wither. You will be a model of health and beauty. Oh boy. I know that's not the case. As I look out here, as you look at me. Whatever you set your hand to do succeeds. How many can say that's been your experience? You don't fail once in any of your endeavors? Happiness, fruitfulness, prosperity are found on the road to bringing your life into conformity with the law of God. In contrast with that road, the road taken by the wicked, that road leads to destruction. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. They cannot stand in the judgment. They can't stand with the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Instead of a withering or a never withering tree, the wicked are described as husks that float away in the wind. They don't really ever bear any fruit, but it's not so much that they're not bearing fruit as much as the fact that they must face this judgment. And they won't be able to stand in that judgment. Psalm 2 sets up the expectation of God's rule over the nations through his anointed king. There's an expectation in the first couple verses that the world will oppose God's ruler... Just as they oppose God's law, so they want independence from the king. Rebellion is expected. You know, don't ever be shocked that the world wants to oppose their king. That's just, Psalm 2 sets it up as an expectation. That's not really the struggle that people rebel against the king. What is the struggle is the way in verse 4 of chapter 2 that, that the psalmist presents this opposition to God and his king like it's nothing. <laughs> he sits in heaven and laughs. I've set my king on his hill. 
You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God is not threatened in the least by man's rebellion. There's no battle from God's perspective. It's an unfair fight. He's squashing an ant on the ground. He's laughing, not because it's funny, but because it's so insignificant, it's so preposterous that anyone would think that they could truly rebel and make themselves overthrow the God of the universe. God, in a sense, mocks them as they're mocking him. Now, I'm not telling you that the nation's power is feeble. This is just a statement of how great God is. All of these nations will either bow to him or they will be crushed by the king. At the coronation of every king in Israel, God adopts that king as his son. That's what this means when it says today... I have begotten you. It's not primarily a statement about Jesus Christ's eternal divinity, eternal sonship, like in John. It is a statement that the king has been adopted by God himself as his own, so that a human ruler is the divine ruler. And because of this newfound relationship, the king can now ask for the nations and God will give it to him. Think about that. And God, uh, it's almost like the psalmist is, he's speaking to God's people, maybe he's speaking to his own heart, but he's actually warning the nations in verse 10, be wise, be warned. Kiss the sun, or you're going to perish. Take refuge in him, or you will perish. You see, Psalm 2 sets up an expectation. The human king should not have any enemies that he can't conquer. Now, look at Psalm 3, which will be a portion of our message for next week. But just take a quick look at Psalm 3. What is going on? This is a psalm of David. When he fled from Absalom, his son. Here's King David, the one whom no no enemy can conquer, and he's running from his son? Sounds like Psalm 2 is not happening. And you see David being honest with his struggles. He's like, Lord, how many are my foes? I'm drowning here. People are saying to me that there is no salvation in God. Does that sound like what the world's teaching? And then he says, but you, O Lord, you are a shield. You're my glory, the lifter of my head. I cry out to you. 
and, and he goes on and he basically says in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. So it's like even though my life doesn't look like it at all right now, I am not going to let go of Psalm 1 and 2. So let's do our own little theological reflection. Again, I ask you, do you believe that the path to happiness coincides with meditating upon and delighting in God's law? And do you believe that the path to happiness is the product of submission to Jesus Christ? Your experience will teach you otherwise. God's people are not always happy. Ungodly people are sometimes happy. Psalm 73 deals with this very question. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See how he's, he's wrestling with, how could this be? Not just all oh, things just happen. They're like, wait a minute, the wicked should not be happy. They shouldn't be prosperous. And yet there they are. I love what uh, this guy, Christopher Ash, wrote. He says, Psalm 1 is very simple. It's problematic. <laughs> and on the face of it, patently untrue. Do you see how clinging to the truth of Psalm 1 and 2 requires faith? Isn't that what we're supposed to live by? Faith? Whenever you're, you're, you're struggling with, with unhappiness and failure and disappointment, you can ask a question. Who's, who's at fault here? Is it God's fault or is it my fault? And the psalmists are very quick to admit their failures, right? Because one question you could ask is, if I don't delight in God's law perfectly, is happiness done? Because I'm telling you, not one of you delight in God's law perfectly, <laughs> at least not now. Psalm 2 kind of says, take refuge in the king, but it doesn't really explain the gospel. But I'll tell you, you go a little bit farther, you get to Psalm 32, and the psalmist is wrestling with his own sin, and he says, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven and his sin is covered. You see how he's taking the happiness of Psalm 1, he says, I've fallen short of that, is happiness gone for me? No, I can have my sins forgiven. Psalm 51's perfect expression. See, because nowhere in Psalm 1 or Psalm 2 does it tell you how to delight in God's law, does it? It says you're happy if you do. But I've got a heart that doesn't want to delight in God's law. And so Psalm 51, David is saying, have mercy on me. Cleanse my heart. Change my heart. Renew me. Help me pour out your spirit upon me so that I could love your law. But see, if you don't have the love of God's law as the foundation, you'll never cry out to God for mercy. But it's interesting that the psalmist don't see every experience of, of uh, unhappiness as a result of their own sin. I mean, they're honest with their sin, but not all the time. It, there are sometimes when they say, I love verse uh, Psalm 13, um, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? So that's a famous one. 
He's saying, wait a minute, something's wrong here because Psalm 2 says, as a king, I should be, uh, God should be taking care of me, and God must be on vacation. That's how he's feeling. Do you ever feel that way? You're not seeing what's going on in my life, Lord? And so sometimes the psalmist just, he, he, they just cry out to God and they say, God, this is not the way I want to be. And, they, and then they have to wait. Psalm 13, which began, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever, ends with, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So here's some of my trying to help you apply the Psalms, how I've tried to use them in my own life. How do I apply Psalm 1? I use it to examine my heart. If you don't have any desire to study God's word, to read it, to see the beauty of God's law in it, and the beauty of his steadfast love and mercy, if you don't have any desire for that, you're on the wrong path. You don't earn your salvation that way, but you ought to question whether you truly want to delight in God's law. Because that's the path to happiness. That's the path to eternal life. On the one hand, you if you find yourself in that state, you should cry out to God. Take the warning of Psalm 2 and say, kiss the Son, embrace Him, and find refuge in Him and say, Lord, help me. But even as a saved person, you continue to struggle with not delighting in God's law. You have your old nature, and it's just constantly there. And it's always a, a, a helpful to me to reprogram myself because I can go through life and I can think, well, this will make me happy. That will make me happy. And then I read Psalm 1, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, it's, I have to be reminded this is the path. I also use Psalm 1 to, to show me Christ. See, Jesus was born under the law. Jesus always did the will of his Father. Jesus is the one who suffered and bled and died, obeying the will of his Father so that you could be forgiven of your sins. So in if you want to think about anyone that has perfectly embodied Psalm 1, it is Jesus Christ. And it is the reason that in Psalm 2, the Father says to him, Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations. I also use Psalm 1 to give me hope. How does it give me hope? Well, it gives me hope this way. If Jesus Christ perfectly delighted in God's law, and Jesus Christ is my king who will rule over the eternal kingdom, then guess what? He is going to make me, who belong to him, perfectly delighting in God's law. So whatever my struggle is today, I know that Jesus Christ has taken hold of me to make me a lover of God's law. And that's encouraging. <clears throat> I also think you can use Psalm 1 to help you better understand your own unhappiness. Brothers and sisters, 
Psalm 1 is not happening in your life today. You are not perfectly prosperous. You are not completely healthy and wealthy and whatever. That is not happening. So you have every right to be disappointed and frustrated. It is appropriate to feel bad sometimes. The Psalms give you the right to not be happy. It doesn't give you the right to let go of the path to happiness. And to rejoice in the Lord. But it does give you the right to deal honestly with your unhappiness today. Psalm 2, really quickly. I use it to tell myself, I've got a king who has a right to rule over me. And as the law kind of gives you the moral code of God, the fact that you have a king tells you he has a right to rule your life. And one of the ways that you are learning to submit to your king today is just learning to accept what he providentially gives you every day. It's not always what you want. And you bow your heart to your king. I use Psalm 2 to o- overcome discouragement when I experience, when I witness evil around me in its rise to power. I just say it's chaff. Regardless of who wins the election this coming year, chaff. You understand, your king sits in heaven and laughs. And I also use it to not fear the powers of this world. Can influential and powerful men hurt me? Yes. They could take away my family. They can throw me in prison. They can do all sorts of things to me. I am not to fear that. I do fear it. But I'm not to fear that. Because my king sits in heaven and laughs. And finally, and this is important, it should encourage you to warn people of the coming judgment. We're not just playing games with Christianity. There is only one king at the end of the day. And you will either be submitted to him and taking refuge in him, or you will be rebelling against him and feel his crushing blow. That's the world in which you live. Be encouraged to kindly, gently, but firmly tell people their need of Christ. Jesus is ruling He will again come and rule over this entire earth. He will rule according to his perfect law. And our eternal happiness depends upon it. Amen.